about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth? has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Good evening, friends. It is great to be with you. It's sunny in the church behind me. It's daylight savings. It's a good day to be on God's good earth. And we are in church together, which makes it even better. And we are kind of in a bit of a gap week in our preaching program. Isaiah starts next week. John finished last week. And so we're doing a week on a psalm. Uh, And so I thought, well, how about I choose a psalm that, that goes after a particular problem that might be helpful for a few people. And What's been, I've heard a lot of language of in lots of Christian spheres in the last year or so, uh, is this language of deconstruction, which is a word some of you might know and some of you won't know, that's fine. Uh, It's a word that refers to questioning some of the beliefs uh, you held for a while and wondering whether they're true anymore. It's about purposefully re-engaging beliefs and ideas that we've taken on and questioning, are these true or are they not? It has been some very famous examples of Christian celebrities deconstructing and walking away from the faith. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why we do things like this. Sometimes it's just because we've grown up in a really kind of different church setting and then we move to the city and we're trying to work out the difference between Jesus and the church culture we were part of. What is him and what isn't? Some of us have had some really difficult past experiences of church that need thoughtful unpacking, that need moments to kind of pray through and think through. 
And some of us have experienced the worst of the church and need to find a way beyond that. Some of us have experienced the failure of church leaders and are just struggling with church as an institution. And a whole bunch of us are just dull and in our faith and doubting and unsure and just not feeling it at the moment. You know, doubt and deconstruction, these are old things, not new things. As we look at the book of Psalms in particular, they're filled with people questioning, doubting, wondering. And Psalm 73 is kind of the crown jewel of that type of psalm in the book of Psalms. You know, the Psalms are just haphazardly put together. They're arranged very purposefully. Uh, and Psalm 73 begins book three of the Psalms, which is the darkest set. It's the songs composed in and around the fall of Israel and its exile, full of pain and longing. Psalm 88, the darkest psalm, is part of the set. These are psalms for crisis, psalms for disorientation, psalms for doubt and dullness. And what we see in Psalm 73 is that actually these moments of disorientation and difficulty, we need not be afraid of them. We need not be scared of them. They actually can be wonderful moments of evolution in our faith and wonderful growth into intimacy with God. Rachel Held Evans, uh, who uh, tragically died a couple of years ago, was someone who doubted a lot and wrote about it. I don't agree with everything she wrote. But she wrote really interestingly about doubt in this way. She said, if I've learned anything over the past five years of unpacking her fundamentalist background, it's that doubt is the mechanism by which faith evolves. It helps us cast off false fundamentals so that we can recover what has been lost or embrace what is new. It is a refining fire, a hot flame, that keeps our faith alive and moving and bubbling about where certainty would only freeze it on the spot. There's a good place for questioning and doubt in the Christian life. And what I'm hoping as we, as, as we walk through Psalm 73 together, it, it gives us a bit of a pattern and a picture of how to actually do that prayerfully and well with God. So let's walk through it together and see how it can help us in whatever way uh, we might be experiencing this right now or we will be experiencing it or one of our friends is experiencing it right now together. What Psalm 73 begins with is a belief that is doubted and questioned but then affirmed. That's what the opening sentence is about. The psalmist starts, surely, in Hebrew it's, ach, ach, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, it's a, it's a statement. God's good to his people Israel, to those who follow his commands, who seek to worship him wholeheartedly. This is the belief that he wants to affirm at the beginning. Asaph is the guy who wrote it. And yet, it's the thing that he doubted. It's the belief that got called into question. It's the belief that through the course of the psalm we see was kind of an idea, but became a lived reality. It was a belief that became a question. Is God good to Israel? To those who are pure in heart? He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. It's a really interesting beginning, don't you think? It reminds us 
of how important it is to doubt things and question them to then come to the fullness of their truth. That's what this opening tells us, is the journey of the psalmist Asaph. I think it's also helpful even just to name for ourselves that the thing we're wrestling with in a sentence, the good thing that we think is true but we're just not sure we can see is true right now. You know, like, God is good to his people always. Or the church should always protect the vulnerable. Or, you know, God will protect me and keep me from harm. Or it's always better to follow Jesus. Or church leaders are always to be humble and gentle. You know, there's things that we sense are true, but we're questioning whether they are. I wonder what yours might be. If you could name it in one sentence, the thing you're wrestling most with right now, maybe it would really help to name it, to write it out, as the psalmist does here. What's the belief that's being called into question for you right now that you're wrestling with God with? Maybe even write it down. Or say it to the person next to you if someone is there with you or text it to someone if no one is. But what happens for Asaph, secondly, is that he has a disorienting experience that really calls this into question. And that's where the bulk of, of verse 3 to 14 really is. He's unpacking his experience which called his belief into question. And his experience is of arrogant people for whom life is awesome. And I would even assume that these aren't Israelites based on the context in exile and things falling apart and on his beginning that goes good to Israel. The foreign people who are arrogant have no pure hearts and yet life is great. He says in verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They don't have any struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and they clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. You see, he looks on at those who not have pure hearts, but callous hearts who have pride around their necks. What does he say? He says he envies them. He looks at them and I think, they have life awesome. They're not sick. Things go really well. Common things that go bad for other people don't go bad for them at all. And they just get on with doing whatever they th- evil thing they imagine. He keeps going. They scoff and they speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. It's jarring, isn't it, for him? He's looking around at everyone else who has no concern for God, who don't have pure hearts but callous hearts. And life is really good for them, really easy for them. And in their arrogance, they're violently oppressing others and arrogantly striding around the earth, even speaking against God himself. We know people like this, 
We've seen many arrogant, proud people succeed and exploit others to amass wealth or to take advantage of the vulnerable who feel that for them, things will always be fine and no one's going to call them into question for the way they use their power. We know people in church who are like this, who are arrogant and in their arrogance destroy. And things are fine. Asaph laments in verse 13, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and I've washed my hands in innocence. All, all day long I've been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. You're like, here I am trying to keep my heart pure. Washing my hands in innocence, not oppression. And all I get is suffering. Every morning, there are new punishments, he says. So he's looking at the callous-hearted, arrogant people and looking at his way of life, and he's envious. What, what's the point? What is the point of following God when he's not really that good to me? He's much better to them. I wonder if that's a kind of envy that you can resonate with. Of trying really hard to love and follow God. But looking around and saying, well, it's, it's much easier if you don't. And nothing really goes wrong for anyone else. You know, I think there's a really peculiar type of envy that maybe in our post-Christian age we can become tempted by. It's really, really well named by Mark Sayers, so I'm going to let him say it. He says this, Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith while it's gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for justice and shalom whilst defending the reign of individual will. Post-Christianity is Christianity emptied of its content. When we understand that post-Christian culture offers a kind of alternative liberal form of Christianity, we can see that many of those who leave don't imagine that they're throwing themselves into an atheistic sea. One day the penny drops, and one wonders if they can still have what they value about their faith without the restrictions. Basically what he's saying is, in our age, we deeply value other people. Their rights, what they have, their poverty, their freedoms. Our age is marked by values of the kingdom of God. Of things that look like the love that Jesus calls us to. And it's easy to look around our age and think, well, why am I in church when I could be outside church doing the same things and it would be easier on me? I'd have less restrictions on myself. Life might not be so hard. Maybe I could make decisions I really want to make but can't. There's a deep temptation of this envy in our age of looking around at our culture that is Christian-ish and going, well, I don't need God to live a life that Jesus wants. In fact, it'd be better if I left him behind. There is a unique Psalm 73 moment in our age. And I just want to name it tonight because I feel it at times. I bet you feel it at times. 
Or maybe just casting off all your faith, but parts of your faith that don't, would be easier not to have around issues that our age just won't stomach anymore. Are you feeling that tonight, friend? Or is there another experience that's disorienting you, pushing up against, making you feel unsure? And one way this psalm just helps us go, that's okay. That's a good part of faith. But what happens next is vital. Because where Asaph goes for clarity and disorientation is into the presence of God. When I talk to people about this moment in their faith when they're disoriented and thinking about pulling apart their faith, maybe even leaving it behind, often their instinct, I've had lots of these conversations, is to go, well, I'm going to not go to church for a while. I'm going to go off somewhere else and think this through. And I always say, oh, please don't. Because what Asaph finds, what everyone finds, is that really to deal with these things well, you need to go into the presence of God, into the presence of his people. This is what Asaph says. If I'd spoken out like this in verse 15, I would have betrayed your children. But when, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. It really did. This is, this is a real doubt, a real discomfort. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Do you know who Asaph was? He was one of uh, King David's worship pastors. He was one of the, the chief kind of music leaders in the temple. He played at one of uh, King Solomon's inaugurations. Like he was involved in kind of the, the, the high moments of life under David and then Solomon. He's one of the, the, the chief musicians of the temple. He knows about the presence of God and about the sanctuary and the songs sung and what happens there. And he says he, he wrestled with all this stuff and he couldn't make sense of it. He could not make sense of it until he went into the presence of God. And then what happens is he understood the destiny of these arrogant people. He said, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. You see, for what Asaph was discomforted by, the presence of God was the only remedy. What could possibly make it okay for these arrogant people to stride the earth oppressing and speaking against God? Well, the answer is a holy God who will one day answer them with his wrath who will sweep them away like a mist, leaving them forgotten like the dream you can't remember from last night, who will despise them like a Harry Potter novel full of fantasy. It was the holy presence of God that made this possible to believe, that God was still good. It was the only answer. You know, it's the only answer for our own envy in the, in the end, isn't it? That there's a heaven and a hell. That there's a judgment of God. 
that actually it's not enough just to be a good person in the world. It's not just good enough to do Jesus-ish things. You need to know him, love him, receive his good news, trust him, stay near to him. The final judgment of the holy God is very clarifying. and It's something you can only get from being in his presence. And his presence answers us in so many different ways. And it's only with him, hearing from him, that we can orient ourselves in our doubts and disconcerted hearts. But it's not just that that gets clarified for Asaph. What also gets clarified for him is himself. Did you notice this? It says in verse 21, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. The, the way those words are, are, are put together, that the embittered spirit implies that actually Asaph was a bit involved in making himself bitter. And that he actually was piercing and grieving his own heart a bit. This wasn't just a disorienting thing happening to him, but something that he was actually turning in on in himself. That he was letting some bitterness fester inside him. And it turned him into a donkey in the presence of God. A brute beast, senseless and ignorant. This is a very interesting point. Because there's a point in his doubt when he made, him, made it worse for himself, where he turned in on himself. And he needed to repent of it. And it's complicated and difficult, but in the, in the midst of our own doubts, this happens as well. It's very easy for us to add a layer of our own bitterness to our doubt, to kind of entrench it in its own power, rather than coming into the presence of God and asking for help. But when he walks into God's presence, he suddenly realizes, what have I been doing? I've been embittering my heart. Friend, maybe in the, in the presence of God in his word today, you're feeling the same thing. Yeah, I've been, I've been embittering myself. I've been adding to my own dull, decaying doubt. What am I doing? Being a donkey in the presence of God. Well, the good thing is the last thing that Asaph says that really helps, even if you're feeling that right now. That's a wonderful realization for Asaph that even in and through his doubt, even in and through his questioning, even in and through his affliction, that God had been with him. And that the wonderful goodness of God did not, was not a result of his life going well, but was a part of God being with him. Asaph says, it is best to be with him, with God. He is enough in the end. Look at these wonderful words. Remember he just said, I've been like a donkey in your presence, yet I am always with you and you hold me by my right hand. He's looking back over the trail of the the journey he's gone and going, you've been here the whole time. You've been holding me. In fact, you've been guiding me. And afterwards, you won't destroy me, you'll take me into glory. 
Whom have I in heaven but you? And, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. See, this is the answer to the envy he was feeling. It wasn't to get more stuff out of life. It was to find more in the presence of God. To treasure more the presence he carried with him day after day. With the God who was always holding him and guiding him and leading him to glory. That God with him was enough. Even in the doubts and discomforts of life. Did you notice how he didn't actually get an answer to his question? Why do arrogant people get to oppress the poor? Why is it that the rich seem to win and everyone else loses? Why does it seem like the worst people end up at the top? There's no answer to that. Asaph's answer is the wonderful promise of God's presence with him. And is his heart's delight in it always being there. My flesh and my heart may fail, he says, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Which is a way of saying, uh, this is going to keep happening this weakening of my flesh and my heart and my soul in the circumstances of life. But God is my strength and my portion. He is what I have. He is what I need. And He will strengthen me when I can't see straight, when I can't think straight, when I can't feel straight. He's, even then, His right hand holds me. Those who are far from you will perish, He says. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Friend, you may not have the life you want, but he is enough. You may not have the answers you think you need right now, but his presence is still with you. Life might be murkier and grayer than you're expecting it to be when you were 15. But his presence is strong and sure. You may feel like you can't trust the church at the moment, but you can trust him. You might not be able to trust every pastor you've ever met, but he won't fail you like they do, like we do. Whom have you in heaven or on earth but him? See, it was in the mess of this life, in the mess of this world, that Jesus came near to us. In the mess of the cross, God poured out his love as he despised his son like a fantasy, as he swept him away with his own terrors, as he pushed him out that he might always have us near. It's by letting go of his son's hand that he took hold of yours. And he sent his spirit into your life. And there is nothing that can happen in your life that can take that away. Friend, it is best to be near him and with him and by him. So with whatever you have today, draw near to his presence and offer it to him.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.